Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. Today, we will discuss developing oral recombinant vaccines. I'm Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe, and Biopharm International, and I will be moderating this event alongside Chris Spivey, Editorial Director. In this episode, Chris and I will be speaking with Dr. Sean Tucker, the Chief Scientific Officer of Vaxart. And without further ado, Sean, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview about you and what it is that you've done? Sure. Um, Thank you again for inviting me to the podcast. Um, I am a PhD scientist. I graduated several years ago, and I've been working in the pharmaceutical, you know, biotech arena for the last Oh, oh, more than 25 years. I've worked in you know, areas of cell therapy, gene therapy, and recombinant vaccines, as we're going to talk to today. My area of expertise is just is how the immune system works at a wet surface, for example, in your intestine and your nose. And that's sort of where I've you know, specialized you know, for the last several years. All right, let's jump to our first discussion point, which is with regards to oral recombinant vaccines. So that is something that your company develops. To start, could you tell us about oral recombinant vaccines, like how they work and how they're formulated? Sure. I think before we get into recombinant vaccines, let me tell you a little bit more about the old traditional way of doing vaccines. In the old school way is you grow up a pathogen in big vats and you kill it or you grow up in a, uh, you know, a mutated pathogen, something that it's not so dangerous. Those are called attenuated pathogens. Grow these up in large vats, and then you give it to someone, and that vaccine basically drives an immune response that creates memory so that you'll be protected the next time you come across that sort of pathogen. And again, this is sort of the old way of doing things, traditional way of vaccines. And for example, if, you know, on the oral side of things, you know, all the oral vaccines are you know, developed to date, have been basically attenuated pathogens like the oral polio vaccine. So now that we've talked about the old school, let's talk about you know, the new school, you know, recombinant vaccines. Instead of using a whole pathogen, like a virus or a bacteria that's attenuated, take only a piece of that pro- bacteria or virus, the protein of interest, and then put that into somebody. And there's some huge advantages to doing that. And so you know, um, historically, of course, you know, there's been ways of, you know, we've talked about, you know, using these uh, attenuated pathogens, but, you know, using just one protein, you know, has some manufacturing advantages. Um, I would like to tell you a little bit about two different flavors of these essentially recombinant vaccines. One is protein-based, where you take a protein of interest, you grow it in, you know, big vats outside the person, and then you take that protein and inject it back into the person. Or gene-based, which are essentially you put in nucleic acid, you give it to the person, and then the person makes that protein of interest. And what, from our standpoint, there's been some very nice successes, you know, on the recombinant side of things. For example, as a protein-based vaccine, the hepatitis B vaccine has been very successful, and it's worked phenomenally. And you can look at the, you know, the COVID vaccines today, which are gene-based, where you deliver a protein because it's made within each person, either delivering RNA 
or you deliver DNA through an adenovirus and you basically create an immune response to that protein interest. And again, from COVID, those have been very good. Now let's just switch over to what, you know, something about oral recombinant vaccines. Well, historically, if you put a protein into the intestine, that doesn't do too well from the standpoint of the vaccine because a protein in your intestine is just food and your, your immune system doesn't activate it, just your body just digests it. So what we've done to try to overcome this problem is essentially deliver a gene-based vaccine to the intestine and put a, another uh, molecule, this double-stranded RNA, which is a signal to basically tell the immune system to pay attention. So now the immune system doesn't think of it as just another food particle. It thinks of it as something that it needs to mount immune response. And now you can overcome some of the issues and use some of the advantages of recombinant DNA technology. And sort of that's the where we've gone and we're fairly much, the, we are the pioneers in this field of oral recombinant you know, you know, technologies to the intestine because it's just been very difficult to accomplish before that. Well, quick uh, clarification. So the follow-up on the double-stranded RNA, does that activate in the presence of part of the pathogen or that will just activate on its own in the body? So if the way we've kind of constructed it is we sort of make your protein of interest, your essentially your, you know, the antigen, your immune system responds, and we put it in exactly this double-stranded RNA in exactly the same cell. And by putting it co-localized, now that basically tells the immune system to pay attention. And when it looks to see what's to grab onto it, it only has the pathogen of interest. So for example, if we put a protein for SARS-CoV-2, it'll go out, your immune system will just go after that protein of interest. Or if you put in influenza, then you basically only make an influenza specific response. You know, this co-localization because it's in the same cell allows your immune system to grab it. If you just put the double-stranded RNA, nothing would happen because it wouldn't have anything to grab. So what are the pros and cons of oral recombinant vaccines as compared to other vaccines? Well, I think the pros from, you know, I'll, I'll talk more globally first. The pros for recombinant vaccine, you know, is that since you're only putting in one protein of interest, not the whole pathogen, it could be safer. And for example, if you have an attenuated vaccine that put into somebody that has immune compromise, that could create some problems. In historically, I told you about the oral polio vaccine being actually very good from a lot of standpoints. But one of the things that it had a problem with is it would shed polio out your intestine. Essentially, you would wait, you would put it into the sewage. And if there was places in the world where they're, you know, where they weren't so sanitary, they would basically potentially pick up that vaccine and it could revert to a wild type and people could get polio. So from the standpoint of a recombinant vaccine, that has been very a lot safer basically just put one protein. The disadvantage of the recombinant vaccine technologies, and this is gonna be one of my themes, is that you don't get the same sort of broad response. And particularly that's important for things that are mucosal pathogens. If you put the oral polio virus vaccine into the intestine, you swallow it on the sugar cubes, you get an immune response in the serum, but what's more important, you get an antibody response in the actual intestine. And so it makes it a lot harder to get infected compared to something if you just injected it a protein. So you get this broadened response with the, by putting at the intestinal surface. And that's one of the things. So recombinant vaccines are great because there may be some safety, but on the other hand, you don't get the broadened its response potentially. That has been a problem sometimes. Now, could you um, talk about the process of developing an oral recombinant vaccine and how does that differ from an injectable vaccine? 
from the standpoint of basically the process, it kind of works the same. So if you're trying to build a vaccine, you first do a phase one study, which you look to see for safety. You give your vaccine to a small number of people. You ask, hey, did you have any side effects on a diary card? You do it blinded usually so that you don't have any biases. And then you basically read out. Um, the next stage is phase two, where you basically look at expanded data set. You look more carefully at the immune response. You look at dose ranging. And then on phase three, you look for basically protection against infection or you know, some sort of clinical outcome. And that's usually traditional for all the vaccines. From our standpoint, the only difference between using an oral recombinant vaccine and a injected vaccine is that the measurements that you may be using and may be important for protection may be different. For example, some of the oral, some of the injected vaccines given or injected recombinant vaccines, it's all about how many serum, much serum antibodies you make. What we found is in our system, sometimes what makes a bigger difference is whether you're making a mucosal response, basically antibodies in the intestine or the nose. What does the typical development of an oral recombinant vaccine look like? Well, as we talked about before, you know, the development path looks, you know, it's pretty traditional from, you know, going from phase one to phase two from phase three. You know, one of the things that we are trying that's a little bit different, you know, is basically doing something called a challenge study. And let me explain what a challenge study is. What we do is we give people either our vaccine and tablets or placebo tablets. It's all, you know, always blinded. So you don't know which is which. And then you wait and then you give everybody an infection. For example, we did this study, which was funded by US government, my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam. And uh, essentially what, how it worked is we gave our vaccine as a tablet or we gave an injected flu vaccine and then we waited 90 to 120 days and then put flu in everybody's nose. And then we read out to figure out how many people got infected or you know, had clinical symptoms of influenza. And what we found is that you know, our vaccine did just as well as the commercial vaccine for protection against influenza disease. And in fact, we looked like we did better from the standpoint protecting against infection, basically the number of people that shed influenza at the end. So again, this is another thing that, you know, one of the things that from our standpoint may be a little different is we think that this path of the challenge model may be a good way to basically sort of prove the efficacy. But this is Chris, and that leads very directly into variants and the choice of the influenza strand you used. So I don't know if you want to comment on that for the challenge test. Yeah, I think that, you know, in the, sh in the short term, one of the things that, you know, that's nice about, you know, the challenge is that, you know, Obviously, you know, we were able to do this study where we basically looked at whether our vaccine, which was fairly well matched to the challenge strain, could protect as well as essentially a vaccine that, you know, was a commercial success, which was very, it was tightly matched to the, you know, to the challenge strain. And you put a good point is that, you know, in challenge models, you could ask the question, how well does your vaccine do in terms of cross protection or protection against variants? And I think one of the things that I would like to point out is that the immune system at the mucosal surfaces, the antibodies are made, can be much more cross-reactive. This is what we've seen and other people have seen it out. And in fact, with flu, it's been pretty well developed because the antibodies that are made are basically, you know, usually they look kind of like a Y, you know, but mucosal antibodies are basically a bunch of these Ys linked together. So now you have more binding sites per molecule and those things can be much more effective from the standpoint of you know, inhibiting a variant or, you know, in the case of flu, a slight train strain change. And so I think that that's been well documented for flu. 
we're certainly think that it's important for COVID as well. And one of the things that we're doing in our COVID vaccine is trying to drive up the mucosal antibodies in the nose that are cross-reactive. That actually leads into a, another question that I had was with regard to oral recombinant vaccines, are there particular viruses, because you've spoken of you know, flu and COVID, are there particular viruses or anything else that you think oral recombinant vaccines would be the best form of treatment for? Yeah, I mean, I think, keep in mind, you know, we're the pioneers in essentially the oral vaccine world or recombinant vaccines. There's not really been any other successes that I can tell, you know, there's people trying things. Um, but one of the things we think that, you know, may be very, a good thing about our approach is that, you know, with recombinant injected vaccines, you can make really good serum antibody response, you know, basically antibodies in the blood, but they're most of the pathogens basically invade through the nose, the mouth, you know, and other places. And we think that having our vaccine delivered to a wet surface is going to produce more antibodies. And it show, we have shown this in humans, antibodies at the wet surfaces. And not all pathogens can be addressed by an antibody responses in the blood. And I think one of the things in the future is that, you know, building something that can actually make an antibody response at the site of infection may be really important. And that's one of the advantages, I think, of the oral recombinant approach that we're taking. Could you talk a little bit about the manufacture for clinical trials and how kind of that has worked out specifically, obviously for oral recombinant vaccines? Sure. So, you know, like all, you know, recombinant vaccines, you know, we basically grow up our vaccine in big tanks. You know, usually they, you know, are have disposable inserts and you put the propeller in and you stir it up and you grow it up to large quantities. Um, most all vaccines then go through a purification phase where you basically take out the junk and most vaccines will then do what's called sterile fill finish. So they'll put it into vials or needles and then basically have to do a ton of testing to make sure that they haven't accidentally contaminated because you can't prove that every single vial is sterile. You have to do some randomized tests. And of course, this has led to some problems in the vaccine space because if you test positive for, you know, sterility, you had to fail the whole lot. And if the lot's really large, you just lost a lot of material. One of the nice things about our standpoint is, you know, we still do the same grow up in big vats. We purify it on columns. And then instead of going through the sterile fill finish process, what we do is we dry the vaccine and then we compress it into tablets. And then we put enteric coatings on it. We don't actually have to do sterile fill finish because you're obviously your mouth is not sterile. Your intestine's not sterile. We have to show that it's clean of specific pathogens, but it doesn't have to be sterile. And this is one of the advantages. It's a lot cheaper to tablet and to coat than it is to basically do sterile fill finish. So from our standpoint, that's the big difference, you know, in our approach versus the recombinant vaccines. Is the tableting process for oral recombinant vaccines similar to your typical small molecule APIs? Uh, the short answer is it's, it's similar in that basically we're taking a component, you're mixing it up with excipients that allow for tableting and you compress it and you put in enteric coatings. The tricky part is there's a ton of information and in, you know, in experts in the pharmaceutical world of basically how to do this for small molecules. Doing this for a large biologic is a lot trickier because you got to basically keep that you know, material intact. And so we've had to develop methods to basically do this you know, so that we don't kill the vaccine as we're moving this forward. And so, yeah, there's, it's similar because you can use the same tableting equipment, but we basically have had to make a lot of changes to make sure that it works. 
I know we've talked a lot about like how the oral recombinant vaccines compares to like the injectable vaccines, but if you want to add anything else, how do your vaccines differ from the injectable vaccines on the market, specifically like how they work in the body? I think we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're learning now is that there's a lot of great technologies out there for, you know, recombinant vaccines that are injected. We know they make a great antibody response in the blood. One of the things that, you know, we think that's really critical from the standpoint of our vaccine is we get a broader immune response. We get more than just antibodies in the blood. We get antibodies in mucosal sites, and we also get things called T cells. And if you're not familiar with this, component of the immune system. Essentially, these are like licensed to kill little, you know, cells that go out and find virally infected cells, at least the cytotoxic T cells are, they go out and they go and kill it. And if you can get a lot of these T cells, you might be able to stop the virus from replicating in the person a lot faster. And particularly if you get in a mucosal surface, like with COVID, you may be able to stop the shedding a lot sooner than you would otherwise. And so we think, you know, this is a very important aspect. One of the things we just published a paper um, recently where we basically showed that you know, our vaccine could basically control, it could reduce the amount of shedding of virus in a vaccine breakthrough system so that people that were unvaccinated, well, this in case it was actually done in animals, that wouldn't get infected or wouldn't be infected as fast. Hear me out, you know, basically the vaccine was producing enough immune responses in the nose, both T cells as well as antibodies, that you know, these animals with breakthrough infections didn't produce, didn't cause the same amount of infection in animals that were nearby where they were exposed to aerosols as animals that were basically you know, not vaccinated with our approach, basically with an injected vaccine. And so I think the key thing is that this mucosal response was able to inhibit shedding and actually protect people nearby from, from getting infected. And this could, and because of the way that COVID is working now, where even people that have triple vaccinated can still be infected and then infect other people, if you can do something to basically control the spread of this, it might be very, uh, it might be fundamentally profound in the way this works. And is that, your, is your suspicion that's because it, the viral load is lower because it actually halts uh, viral replication in the body or you're really not sure? So I think what happens is, you know, obviously what we did in this experiment is we vaccinated animals, whether our vaccine oral, you know, or we did a, you know, injected vaccine. They were both protective of the animals. I mean, they would basically, but we gave this huge dose. And what happened is what we think is going on is that because there's antibodies in the nose of the animals giving our vaccine, that was able to inhibit the infectious virus that's being transmitted. So there is still virus around. It just wasn't as infectious because it was basically probably because it was bound up by antibodies from our vaccine. That's our thinking. Reasonable, plausible suggestion. I've been wanting to ask about the relationship. As I said, I read the patents between the innate and the um, acquired immunity and the T cells. And you know, we're halfway into the pandemic when T cells, but also B cell lymphocytes. Have you guys done much study and? Uh, I'm also interested in how you measure that in the patient, like what ways you've found to actually track your positive results. I'll talk about a studies that we did, you know, for flu and norovirus since we've, you know, those things, those studies have been published, but what there's a couple things that we've done basically to sort of track the lymphocytes that are activated. And of course, what we want to know is something about the lymphocytes that are, you know, responsive to the pathogen of interest. So for example, in the nor in a norovirus study that we've done, 
we basically gave our vaccine by tablets. We've pulled out T cells by taking, you know, we take peripheral blood seven days after immunization, and it's chock full for some reason of vax of B cells and T cells that recognize, you know, your vaccine. And so we've been able to pull those out, and then we essentially just count how many um, B cells, you know, essentially recognize the pathogen. And you plate them out in these, I don't know if you, they're called L-spot plates, essentially. You put them in culture, you throw them on, you know, these plates that are coated with, let's just say they're coated with your protein of interest. And then you sit there for a while, then you wash off the cells, and then you stain and you look to see how many spots are made. And this will give you a, a sense of how many B cells recognize your pathogen of interest after immunization. Similarly, we do the same thing sort of with T cells. We pull the cells out of the person seven days after immunization. We essentially do a couple different things. We put the T cells on these sort of plates. We stimulate them with peptides to essentially the uh, pathogen of interest, or for example, for SARS-CoV-2, we do the S protein and the N protein since those were in our vaccines. Sit them down for a few you know, hours, then we pull them off and then count the spots. And that's one way to basically get an assessment of how many T cells and B cells you're making that respond to the pathogen of interest. So that's kind of the way of looking at the, you know, the, how the cells work. I mean, you know, somebody asked me, you know, why, why are you doing that instead of looking at this, you know, the antibody response in the serum? I says, well, I kind of want to know both things. I want to know how many, how, how big my army is, and that's counting the B cells and T cells. And I want to know something about, you know, the weapons, and that's looking at the sera or looking at the antibodies in the nose. So Lewing both tells you a sense of just how strong the immune response is getting by looking at both the army as well as the weapons. Perfect. And how did the numbers come out for the norovirus studies, just ballpark? So one of the things we found in the norovirus studies, we got B cells that were antigen specific that were recognized norovirus at about 500 per million cells total in the peripheral blood, which is a pretty strong response. So that's a very, very potent B cell response. In our flu study, what we found, just, you know, just to give you sort of ballpark measures, we found that if you when we did this challenge study is that when we gave the tablets and if we counted a hundred spots or so, that person had a 90% chance of being protected against influenza by the fact, by the measure of shedding. So a hundred spots for flu translated to 90% in our hands in this challenge study. I don't know how many spots matters for norovirus, but I would hope that 500 would be a lot more potent, you know, from the standpoint of protection with a gastrointestinal infection, but we'll see. We're gonna do those studies next. I want to go on an ocean liner, so I want you to succeed. <laughs> Another question for you. So how does the longevity of protection for oral recombinant vaccines differ, if at all, from other types of vaccines? So I think that, you know, that's a complicated issue because I think there's some recombinant vaccines when you inject that you have a long lasting serum that will last for life. And there's some that basically don't last very long because you know the immune cell, the antibodies wane, and then you can still be infected again. My my personal belief, based on some of the data we've said, is that the gene-based recombinant vaccines do a little bit better from the standpoint of longevity of the antibodies because you get some you get better help, and you put it, and when you're putting making that protein in a person, that basically creates something more like an infection and your antibodies will stay higher longer. That's my own personal observations, um, but there's certainly some good vaccines out there that are recombinant injected in the 
that lasts fairly long period of time. All right, and do you foresee any trends for vaccines in the future? I, I think there's some really important things that are going on right now in the vaccine space, and I think COVID has helped bring out some of these things. The th three things that you know I think that are really exciting, of course, the mRNA vaccines are really good from the standpoint of being able to manufacture quickly and making a very strong serum antibody response. The next thing I you know would like to point out is that you know there's been some really great work being done right now with computational antigen design. People are trying to figure out how to model proteins to put them in the right orientation so that you get the right immune response. I think that's really important. And the last thing I'd like to point out is, and I think this is probably the thing that's least done well in the in right now in the vaccine space, is basically creating a mucosal response. And because you know we are going to probably end up solving all the problems that a serum antibody response you know can be solved with you know pretty soon because we we have great technologies by injecting vaccines to basically make a serum antibody response. I think the forefront it will be basically trying to address those pathogens where that's not enough. You know, for example, you know, norovirus may be something where you have to have it a mucosal response. It could be that you have other pathogens as well. I, I would suggest that flu would be beneficial, would have a beneficial effect if people could get a better mucosal immune response, something that would be more cross-reactive, something that could be more potent. So I think that's one of the big things in the future is people are going to have to figure out how to create a mucosal response with our vaccines that we're creating, because otherwise we're not going to be able to address every pathogen that's out there. Fantastic. Uh, Chris, did you want to add anything? Yes, I think before we started recording, we talked a little about um, the uh, capacity in manufacturing. You have a second plant that's going online. Could you talk a little about that? And also, are you open to sort of working with partners to sort of speed up your deployment? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we found is that because there's been a lot of demand for our vaccines, we have a lot of different programs in pl place, that having just one manufacturing facility was not enough. And so we bought another one that we had actually worked as a contract manufacturer and they did a pretty good job. Um, and so we added those online. And because we have two different manufacturing you know, facilities, now we can basically make you know, two different vaccines at once. You know, we can certainly, I mean, it's not so hard for us to switch, but it does take some time. And now we basically can double the capacity that we make. And you know, this year we're trying to expand into a lot of phase two trials and it's important for us to have enough material uh, available for those studies. And then for the future too, we want to be able to provide enough for, you know, doing potentially phase three efficacy styles, uh, trials. So we basically need, you know, we needed the capacity. And so it's been very critical for us to, to, to be, do that. And by owning them, you obviously have a little bit better control over, you know, the schedule, which is, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, getting into a facility right now is you got to book a year in advance and put some significant cash down to just preserve your spot. So a little bit more flexibility. You get a little bit more flexibility, you know, of your schedule if you own it yourself. So <laughs> you feel there's anything left unsaid or undiscovered? You know, I guess from your audience, I think the main thing I want, you know, maybe to point out is this the fact that, you know, an oral tablet is just something that would be very, you know, I mean, obviously in the pharmaceutical industry, oral tablets have been very successful from the standpoint of drugs. People would rather take a tablet for sure than go in to get a shot. And I think the same thing, you know, could be true for vaccines, you know, of the future. You know, I developed the technology because I wanted to build something so that the vaccine could come to you 
rather than you having to go get a vaccine and wait in line or call your doctor and have to wait for an appointment. I think that, you know, a tablet vaccine is going to be, you know, great. I mean, I'd love to have Amazon drone drop in my tablets when every time I need my vaccine. So I'm looking forward to those days. Well, I was very impressed with the toll-like receptor, the adaptive immunity, um, and also the uh, way you can reconfigure it without, you know, you've got a platform. So now you can take yeah. that platform and move to whichever area you feel is best suited for, for your work. So I'm very impressed by that. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so very much, uh, Sean, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed their time. All right. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors in March. And if you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our e-newsletters. When you sign up for our newsletters, you'll be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, and much more. We also have a new video series called Drug Digest. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast, Developing Oral Recombinant Vaccines with Dr. Sean Tucker, Chief Scientific Officer of Vaxart. And we will see you all next time.